Well, good morning. It's another beautiful Sunday morning here in America. Welcome to the Wyatt Wright Show. We've got a fantastic show for you today. You're not going to want to miss this one. My name's Wyatt Wright, and this show's about our rights and the laws that govern us. Rights you've heard of and care about, and ones you'd certainly miss if they were gone. I've spent half a lifetime watching government go from trying to do what's right and failing to, well, trying to do what's wrong and succeeding. Every year, more and more personal rights are erased from the books while Americans stand idly by. And I've said it before, it's not because we don't care. Of course we care. But our lives are busy enough trying to feed our families and raise our kids. And while we're busying ourselves with life, ladies and gentlemen, the metaphorical water temperatures rising all around us, like that frog who gets boiled without ever knowing it. So here we are. On this show, we discuss legal issues that affect you and me, the citizens of America. We take a hard look at the laws that affect your freedom, your ability to access the courts, to vote, to speak freely, or in short, to live the American dream. And we're going to get right to it today. We're jumping in the water feet first. You've heard us talk about it right here many times. Real-world examples of attacks on regulation and access to the courts, which... Well, let's be honest, we use to protect ourselves and our families. For ordinary Americans, this oftentimes means being taken advantage of time and time again by special interest groups and big business. Most of the time, we don't know it's happening, but the result is certain. It's often difficult to connect the dots, to find that pattern, to to look at something that will help us understand how we got here. Well, to help us with this task today, we have a fabulous guest joining us, and I'm not going to waste any more time. We're going to reach right out and get him on board with us. Joining us today is University of Texas law professor Thomas McGarrity. Professor McGarrity has published widely in the area of regulatory law and policy, including several books and innumerable policy review articles. The professor has served as a consultant and advisor to the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, the U.S. Occupational Safety and Health Administration, the Texas Department of Agriculture, the Texas Natural Resource Conservation Commission, the list goes on. Professor McGarrity has testified before Congress regarding the role of federal regulation in protecting public health and the environment, and I think he's going to be of great help to us today because today he's here to talk to us about his recent work, but he's also going to talk about his new book entitled Freedom to Harm, the lasting legacy of the laissez-faire revival. Professor McGarrity, thank you very much for joining us today on the Wyatt Wright Show. Well, thank you for having me. Well, I mean, this is exciting, and, and now, and I've got to tell you, your book is absolutely fantastic. Uh, I've, I've I've read it from from beginning to end. Uh, the, the subtitle of your book is interesting, and and I so let me just ask the question: Are we really seeing a laissez-faire revival in America? Oh, absolutely, and and in fact, uh, we've been seeing it for a number of years. It it, it really the book tells the story of the thirty-five year campaign by the business community and its allies in the uh, media and the conservative think tanks uh, to roll back federal regulations and to take away our common law rights, roll them back to a late 19th century laissez-faire benchmark. Um, and it's, it's happened already. It, it, it's, it's not that it's happening. It's continuing to happen, but it's, but it's already happened. Yeah, and and you know you've you you've obviously got a lot of background in this area, administrative and environmental law. Uh, what have you seen regarding the relationship of big corporations with regular America? And I guess what I'm asking is, are we enjoying a symbiotic relationship, or or is corporate influence working to our detriment today? Well, 
we we obviously need uh, business, we, and, and business needs some some degree of freedom. Uh, but what's happened uh, over the last thirty five years is uh, that there's we, we've gotten out of balance, way out of balance. Uh, there, there really needs to be a balance between economic freedom, between responsibility, that is corporate responsibility, and we need agencies and courts to articulate the rules of responsibility. And then finally, the third part of that balance is accountability. We need to hold companies accountable when they violate the rules of responsibility. And what's happened over the past 35 years is we've given corporations a great deal of economic freedom, uh, but we've ratcheted back uh, the uh, rules of responsibility, and we have uh, debilitated yeah. the institutions that are necessary to hold companies accountable. Well, that's a good point. And when I think of accountability, I think of everybody being accountable. In fact, an example I think of is, is it's nice to have a speed limit on the highway, but if there were no police out there, then I'm not sure anybody would be paying attention to the speed limit. So so this concept that, that we've got rules, but if, if we break the rules, there's going to be some sort of recompense or that accountability. Is that what we're talking about when we talk about this relationship with corporate America? That, that's exactly right. Um, co- companies have only one obligation uh, by law, and that is to maximize uh, the value to their shareholders. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no other obligation that, uh, as a corporation, they have. So what we need is other laws. Uh, it can be the common law, and it can be um, statutory law, or it can be regulations uh, written by agencies like the Occupational Safety and Health Administration or the Environmental Protection Agency. Uh, but we need these other rules to constrain corporations because they're otherwise um, only going to pursue their own economic self-interest, and indeed that's what they're obliged to do. Sure, they're obliged to do that, and we're not talking about the, the CEO as an individual, but the CEO as the manager of the company has those obligations to do what's best for the bottom line. That, that's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, they once they've become members of this institution, then they are uh, playing an institutional role and they may be the nicest person in the world uh, as a neighbor or somebody who you, you, you sit next to in church, uh, but in that institutional rule uh, as CEO of the corporation, uh, they have an obligation to maximize income. Sure, and we've talked about it before in the context of, like, Citizens United, some of the opinions that, 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 that allows the influence of the corporations to continue to grow even against our own interests. But I don't want to go there. I want to focus on one thing uh, right away, and that's it seems to me that the theme in your new book, uh, or at least as I see it, seems to be pointing out safety disasters over, over many decades, followed by the meager response of government to the problem, which often came, it seems, in waves uh, following some sort of public outcry cry. And nevertheless, these regulations seem to be in the crosshairs of large corporations who want even less regulation. I, am I close? And if so, uh, what can we do about that? Well, uh, you're, 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 you're very close indeed. Uh, we get these periods of time in, in history, like the progressive era of the early, ni- uh, early 20th century, uh, the New Deal, sure. and what I call the public interest era of the late 1960s and early 1970s, where we have a confluence of crises, a number of crises come together, and the American people realizes uh, that we have to do something about this. Um, and so we tend to enact uh, legislation, and sometimes, uh, as in the late 1960s and early 1970s, the courts sort of get the idea that we need to expand the rights uh, available to individuals. Um, and that happened in, in the 1960s in, in a very big way, 
And what happened then was that corporate America um, created, uh, uh, realized that this was a great threat. I uh, I, you, you might recall uh, in the first chapter of the book, I talk about a memorandum written by Lewis Powell in mm-hmm. August 1971, where he talked about uh, the uh, uh, corporate America being under assault by Ralph Nader and the environmentalists, right. and that the free enterprise system was nothing less than the free enterprise system was at stake. And he urged the recipient of that memorandum, who was his neighbor and good friend, the uh, public affairs director of the United States Chamber of Commerce, to persuade the business community to put lots of dollars into uh, things like uh, uh, a cadre of scholars to, to go out and preach the virtues of free I enterprise. See. I see. And and corporate America responded uh, through a number of large conservative funders and just general corporations, and we created what I call an influence infrastructure. Okay. I mean, uh, well, first an idea infrastructure, I guess, first came yep. about, uh, and we created conservative think tanks. Uh, those didn't exist uh, except for probably one of them prior to 19, uh, 1975. Uh, we created free enterprise programs in American universities. Uh, we created the Chicago version of law and economics. And we created the Federalist Society, uh, which were uh, uh, students in law schools who ultimately now are, are judges. Indeed, the very first uh, faculty advisor for the Federalist Society, and this was created with corporate money, okay. the very first advisor of the Federalist Society was Professor Antonin Scalia. I'll be darned. And we all know that name. By the way, if you're just tuning in, uh, ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to The Wyatt Wright Show. Joining us today on the program is Professor Thomas McGarity. We're talking about his new book called Freedom to Harm, The Lasting Legacy of the Laissez-Faire Revival. Uh, so, so Justice Scalia, in that case, was in a totally different capacity. That's right. He was, yeah. he was advising, He's advising. Uh, students uh, how to attack this new uh, governmental uh, infrastructure, the new agencies and the changes in the common law. Uh, he was advising them to attack those, and over the years, the Federalist Society became uh, very strong and became a uh, basically a, a a feeding ground so that young lawyers could go into conservative administrations like the Reagan administration mm-hmm. or the George W. Bush administration, and ultimately into the judiciary. Many, many members of the federal judiciary now are uh, are and were members of the Federalist Society. Right, and I, and that makes sense. You know, we, we and, and here we are, and, and I don't think anybody's saying, I'm certainly not saying uh, uh, that, that, that corporations are, are, are bad and business is bad and that capitalism is, is not the way to go. All these things make sense, but when we talk about doing them in moderation and having checks and balances with the types of regulations that you've talked about in this book, there has to be some balance. It can't be all one way or there'd be no business. It can't be all the other way or there'd be no society how do we how do we as a nation help to find that 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 balance well that that of course is 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 a difficult matter uh i i think the first thing we have to do to achieve a balance and you've alluded to the citizens united case is we do have to get campaign contributions under control because right now uh it's particularly uh disturbing to me in the case of judicial elections 
Of course. Uh, it's bad enough in, in the case of uh, our national elections, and we see how much money gets poured into those. But judicial elections uh, were typically, uh, prior to this this assault by, by corporate America, uh, they were um, in, on the byways. People... They, there would be maybe one or two candidates. It wasn't particularly partisan. Usually when someone won, they stayed in that position sure. for a period of time. And, and it wasn't made into uh, a, a partisan and ideological thing. Sure. And so many of our, our, our races like that ought not to even be political. They don't even have the basis for it. I mean, here we are in Texas. We elect our constables. We elect our justices of the peace. Please tell me what, it, what difference it makes what their view on abortion is. <laughs> and so yet we've got politics being being uh, forced into those types of races where we can lose good folks merely because of the tug of war uh, back and forth with the national party politics. I get that. Let me ask you this. You know, you, you, you talk in your book uh, about many different areas. You, you talk about uh, drug and device safety. You talk about environmental protection, et cetera. And one of the things that I'm interested in knowing about is food safety. You, you talk about how uh, even as foodborne disease outbreaks increased, the resources of the USDA and the FDA shrunk significantly. That seems to be a pattern. But tell me why this is. I mean, you give that example of the peanut factory, which intentionally shipped salmonella. How in the world should the FDA respond to this, and what can we do? Well, okay, there's a couple of things there. There probably are, uh, yeah. Uh, how did it happen? Yeah. Uh, it happened because um, what agencies do is is behind the scenes. Okay. It's not something that's out front. You don't read about it on the news every day. You don't read about the uh, uh, the courageous FDA employer who, who, who stopped uh, a Excellent. food outbreak, right? Excellent point. Excellent point. All right. And so it's behind the scenes. So it's not really something that's on the public agenda until there's a crisis. Okay. Okay. And then and then people say, oh, my gosh, I thought FDA was protecting us. Well, in the, in the meantime... While nobody was really paying attention to FDA, there's one group that was paying very close attention to FDA, and that's the food manufacturers. Oh, yeah, I bet they do. Uh, because they're the ones that are dealing with them on a day-to-day basis and getting regulated. And what they did in a, in a concerted way over the past several years was, one, disempowering FDA, and to some extent USDA as well, and two, and perhaps more importantly, uh, debilitating them by taking away their resources so that uh, the, the resources available, as I point out in the book, to FDA at the end of the George W. Bush administration yes. were in constant dollars, fewer, far fewer than the resources available to FDA at the end of the Carter administration. Well, that's just appalling. That's just that's appalling. That's right, because when you think about how large the food ex- industry is expanding. Yeah, and our population has increased. And, and the one thing that, that, again, has escaped a lot of attention is a great deal of our food now uh, is not manufactured in the United States. Right. 80% of our seafood comes from overseas. Right. Excellent point. So so it, it's sort of it's hidden in the picture until the system breaks down with something like the peanut outbreak, uh, the, the, the salmonella outbreak. And then people say, well, where's the government? And, and, the, and, and the nerve of these 
uh, these think tanks, then they come in and say, well, you can't, we don't need an FDA because they can't do it anyway. They can't protect it. Well, they can't protect us if they're hamstrung, that's for sure. Right, and so this is the type of of wave response uh, 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 methodology that that you're going through in the book. I mean, I think that's that's really what we're talking about. You've got the FDA, you've got the USDA, you've got all these other agencies out there trucking away, doing their job every day. When something happens, you immediately get this national pressure. You might have some 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 quick influx of whether it's attention by Congress or whatever, getting things done, and then it fades away. Is that true? It just fades away? That's Back right. That's the way it and, was. And particularly the resources fade away. The resources you, fade. you might think, remember after nine uh, eleven. Well, people started thinking, what if terrorists put stuff in our food supply? Sure. So suddenly, people started thinking about that, and FDA got a big increase in their resources to look into imports. Sure. Not a bad idea. Within two years, all that money was gone. Right. Right. And, well, your attentions get refocused. That's perhaps. right. I mean, let's put out the fire that's, that's the squeaky wheel gets the grease. Now, you know, the FDA, we're talking about it in the context of food safety. Let's move over to the D in FDA and talk about the drug drug and device sure. safety. I mean, uh, where are they heading and how effective is this? I think, look, right now we've got a, and we've talked on our show before about about uh, uh, the problems of generic preemption. There's another case out there pending right now before the U.S. Supreme Court uh, that, that can also really hit us hard, and I think it's a mutual, mutual pharmaceutical versus Bartlett. What is the FDA getting ready to face in terms of a tax on its ability to regulate drugs and whether or not that's going to preempt common law? The book that I wrote in 2008 uh, for, the same, for the same publisher was called The Preemption War. Right, right. Exactly about that. The one about uh, trumping local juries, I think, was that's, the that's subtitle right. on that when, book. Yeah. When, when federal bureaucracies trump local juries. Right. And, and that's what was going on during the Bush administration in a very big way. Okay. Uh, that that FDA was out uh, doing whatever they could to persuade courts that uh, common law uh, lawsuits were preempted. Why? Well, why FDA is regulating things. You don't need the common law because every product out there is bound to be perfect because we regulate it just the, so that the risk just equal the benefit. Well, wait a minute. But, oh, wait a minute. I live in Texas, <laughs> or I live in wherever. I want to be judged by the rule in my state, in my community. I, I want to be able to hold somebody accountable for what the rule is in San Antonio, Texas, if I'm harmed. You're saying that I can't do that in many cases. That, that's right. In many cases, certainly with regard to medical devices. With, with drugs, it, 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 it's very complicated mm-hmm. uh, uh, with, with respect to uh, some drugs, uh, non-generic drugs, uh, your lawsuit isn't preempted. Right. Uh, but, but the point here is that we just talked about the fact that FDA doesn't have the resources. They Good can't point. make it perfect. Good uh, point. They, they can't, the best they can do is to, is to come up with some minimum level of protection. And what a jury in San Antonio, Texas, ought to be able to say is that's not enough. Sure. Uh, the, you, this person has been harmed because you have designed a defective product. Yeah, and who's in a better position to have this information? It's the manufacturer. Uh, the FDA, they can't do a complete inside and out inspection of, of every drug that comes before them. Aren't they relying in large part on the information that's being submitted to them by the manufacturer? They're, they're relying entirely upon that yeah. information, except to, to some, uh, Degree, they can go out and look at, at uh, insurance records and that sort of thing. But uh, just just to make it the point very 
clear. Right. FDA does not even have subpoena power. Oh, come on. And any trial lawyer in, in the state of Texas can get more information than the criminal company than the Food and Drug Administration. <laughs> Just amazing. Yeah. Now, well, okay. Now, all right. So we've talked about, we've talked about the, the drugs. We've talked about the food. Environmental protection. Uh, this is something, I mean, you point out in your book, you, you, the example you gave just really hit home with me, and I, I jotted it down. It was the example of President Bush uh, making a commitment uh, early in his, in his presidential term uh, to, to have no net loss of wetlands. So in, instead of, of trying to trim or curb the development that was happening in our wetlands, we simply changed the definition of wetlands so that they could be increased. I mean, to me, that's amazing. Is this something that is indicative of what happens in, in many uh, agencies during the, the Bush era, or is this a limited to environmental? Uh, it's, it, it was happening in many areas. That, that, that one just redefines things, and, and the courts tend to... Uh, when when somebody challenges an agency regulation, they tend to uh, uphold agencies' interpretations of their uh, of their laws, and uh, and that and so we, we get very strange interpretations of regulations, and that that was certainly one of them. Well, if if I promise no net loss of wetlands, and we're still losing wetlands at the rate of several million acres a year, uh, then I guess I better change the definition of wetlands. Yeah. <laughs> I, that's that's one way to do it, I suppose. I, I suppose that's right, but that that the scientists don't quite agree. They they have they have their own uh, notion of what a wetland is. Yeah, I don't I don't blame them. You know, let me touch on this. And 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 by the way, if you've just joined us, this is the Wyatt Wright Show. We've got Professor Thomas McGarity on from the University of Texas today. Uh, we're talking about his new book, Freedom to Harm. It's a fantastic book. Let me ask you this, Professor. Talking about uh, product safety. Uh, last week on the show, we had Attorney Scott Michaelman from Public Citizen, a great organization. He was on and we were talking about the recent secret sealed court case uh, i'm not expecting you to know anything about this but and you, you maybe you do but it prevented the consumer product safety commission from identifying publicly a dangerous product here's my question just how vulnerable because you cover the consumer product safety commission in your book uh, just how vulnerable is that agency today and what holes are there that that need to be fixed the consumer product safety commission is probably uh, it's the poster child for Everything else I've told you. Really? Uh, that, that agency was created uh, in the early 1970s, uh, but uh, the uh, manufacturers of consumer products, uh, and especially toys, that's the one thing that CPSC has been involved in for a long time, right. uh, quickly rebelled uh, against that. And, and by the end of the 1970s, they were already taking away CPSC's powers. Uh, it, as, as time went on, was just basically ignored by everybody. Uh, it, its resources went down to the point at which, um, toward the end of the Bush administration, uh, the office that was in charge of testing toys to see if they were safe okay. consisted of one person in a one-room uh, uh, one room of a second-floor of a building, the first floor of which was occupied by a restaurant. And I think you went and said then that he ended up retiring. And, and then he got retired. Nobody. I don't think they've replaced oh, him still. It's just amazing. It's, it's just, it's, it's pathetic. I mean, the, the CPSC truly is a pathetic agency. It took them 50 years to promulgate uh, a standard to protect uh, upholstery from fires. 
uh, like when somebody might let, leave a burning oh, sure. cigarette on it. Like how, how flammable it is. Right. Yeah. The flammability. Yeah. That's exactly right. Well, that's just amazing to me. And I, and I, I saw one of the, the example or the uh, statistic you gave in the book. It was something like, uh, and I'm going to get it wrong. Maybe you can help me, but the, but the idea is the same. And it was that there was less than a handful, maybe 12 or 13 inspectors at any given time to cover all of these ports around the United States to look for dangerous products. Did I get it close? That's, that, that's pretty close. It, it, when you think of all the ports and all the products that's coming amazing. in. amazing. It, you know, and, and it, it was thinking about food, back to food. Sure. I do know I have a good statistic there. The F- Food and Drug Administration can actually observe 1% of all the food that crosses uh, into our borders. And what they actually open, that's just that they see it go by. Okay, okay. Uh, to actually open it up and, and, and inspect it or test it, that's one hundredth of one percent. Right. I mean, there's no way they could possibly do all that. But but the more the more eyes you've got on a product, the more feet on the ground. At least the better chance you have of of keeping people uh, pretending to be honest, if nothing else. That's right. You, and 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 at least they, they they can be afraid of getting caught. Sure. Right. Sure. And then then we've got that accountability you talked about. It only helps if when they get caught, there's something actually done about it. That's right. And yeah. and and one thing that can be done there is. Uh, obviously, you can strengthen the agencies. You, we really need to strengthen the common law because that's our that's our bedrock uh, uh, accountability uh, function. Uh, but we also ought to be thinking about more criminal prosecutions. Sure, sure. And if and and if we if we allow this this type of accountability at the state level, then that's where we get the local influence. We get the local mores, the 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 what's important to the society to actually make a difference. I mean, that's where they need to speak. But it's this preemption that we need to be worried about. That's right. You speak through the jury. That's yeah. how society speaks. Well, that's a marvelous point. And I have to tell you, your book is fantastic. Thank you for joining us today, Professor. Will you come back? one day and visit with me again absolutely be happy to thank you for joining us today professor thomas mcgarity ladies and gentlemen he's a professor of law at the university of texas uh and he's the immediate past president of the center for progressive reform he's also the author of a fantastic new book we've been talking about it today called freedom to harm which i recommend that you read as soon as possible it's an easy read and it's a great one written by somebody who truly cares about the rights of americans and where we might be headed ladies and gentlemen People are losing access to justice every week. The integrity of our justice systems, is, is it's oftentimes the only thing left to preserve our rights and liberties. Our courts give us the venue to complain of wrongs and injuries. We want the people to be able to speak, that's you and I, about what's important to us. We don't want others in distant cities and distant countries to make those decisions. By golly, I want San Antonians to tell me how it ought to be in San Antonio That's the way it should work. This is more important now than ever before. Stand up and be counted among those who care about what our future holds. Don't let it happen. Don't let it happen. Stand up and speak. Our children deserve better. We're going to have to wrap up this show, but as you go through your week, remember that it was Justice Learned Hand who so famously said, if we're to keep our democracy, there must be one commandment, thou shalt not ration justice. Have a great day, everybody. Come visit us on the web, wyattwrightshow.com. Like us on Facebook or Twitter. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Do all that good stuff. But whatever it is, make sure you come back next week on the Wyatt Wright Show. Wyatt, Wyatt.